0: I want to talk about outrageous worship today. So I thought, well, we can't talk about it and then not do it. All right, so that's what we're going to do, talk about outrageous worship. And in doing this, I'm actually just going to pick up on one aspect of Julian Adams' prophecy Uh, from last week, which has just impacted me all week. There's going to be more that we're going to come back to, but here's one bit of it that uh, I just want to comment on today. It's, It's this, it says, "'And so Jubilee Church, I want you to understand today,' says the Lord, "'that you will usher in my reign in the context of outrageous worship.'" That's what will mark this church in this season, what will shift the atmosphere in this season, what will displace spiritual strongholds. It will come from the place of outrageous worship. A fantastic word. And you know, it fits so well with the Jubilee vision. Jubilee means party. It means celebrate. So we're up for that. We're up for outrageousness and partying. And that's what we're all about, celebrating lives that have been changed by the power of God. But what does this mean for our worship? What does it mean for our worship? So I want to look at what it might mean for us, outrageous worship. Well, some things that it's not going to mean, straight off, it's not just about what happens here on Sunday. It's not just about what happens here on Sunday. It's about our whole lives being filled with radical love for Jesus. And secondly, it's not just about the songs that we sing or the songs that we don't sing. I mean, it... Every, anybody can sing songs. You've only got to look at the football that's on the telly at the moment. They're all singing songs. It's a kind of worship, but it's not the kind of worship that we're looking for in worshipping Jesus, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. It's not just about the songs that we sing, and it's not about the money that we give, and it's not about how much we serve. None of that is about outrageous worship. These things may all be acts or expressions of worship, but they don't define worship. They don't de- find what it really is and there are lots of definitions that I could turn to right now but one in particular I think sums it up it's this it's worship is to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission and praise it's to honor with extravagant love extreme submission and praise and I found a good example I think of this kind of worship in Luke chapter 7 if you just want to turn to Luke chapter 7 which is where we're going to be today just going to read a few verses uh, from verse 36, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and I'm going to read up until verse 39. So verse 36 is this, now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table when a woman who'd lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Wow. A fantastic example of a kind of outrageous worship. A woman who Jesus described a bit later on in the passage as one who'd been forgiven much and so loved much. So much so, actually, that she just couldn't stop pouring it out. She just couldn't stop from worshipping Jesus at his feet, despite what everybody else around thought about her. And I want to use this just as a powerful picture to usher in what I think is going to be a fresh kind of liberty of expression that's going to come to us as a church in this season of outrageous worship that I believe that Jesus wants us to have. So let me just pray, and then I just want to take you through this. Lord Jesus, will you just come and anoint us to hear this word this afternoon? Lord, we pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, you'd release joy on us this afternoon. We pray, Lord, for a fresh revelation of your grace and of your love. We pray, Lord, that you just pour out all that you are. Lord, let heaven come to earth. Let your kingdom come through this message today. Thank you so much, Lord. Amen. Praise God. So let me just set the scene for you. Uh, of this passage. Jesus has been invited to a meal at Simon's house. He's a Pharisee and he's one of the religious leaders of the time. And it's not like any meal you or I would have experienced where you just invite a few select friends and they all sit sort of around the table politely and have different conversations. This is the kind of meal where everybody, the whole of the community would have been invited not to sit at the table but to stand around the edges and just look. So they were allowed not to approach the table, not come into that place, but they were allowed to stand round the edges and just look and watch what was going on and sort of overhear snatches of the conversation. This was a banquet, you know, this was a real social affair, and Jesus was the honoured guest. And this open courtyard would have been filled with people who just wanted to catch a glimpse of this celebrity that they'd heard about. They weren't allowed to approach the table but nothing would have been hidden from them. And it says that Jesus was reclined at the table. They didn't sit around the table like we do, in chairs, sort of sitting nicely and neatly around. They would have been lounged, perhaps on the left elbow, leaning on a bench and just taking the food from the table, which is probably lower. And their head and their arm would be stretched towards the table, their legs away from the table, <laughs> and the sandals hanging over the edge. Okay, so did you get the picture? That's the, the kind of laid-back meal that uh, would have been going on there. And all was going really well. Simon was just so chuffed to have Jesus there, this celebrity, this well-known teacher. Everybody's talking about this man, and he's in my house. So he was really chuffed with this, and everything was going well, until suddenly this woman approached the table. And that was bad enough. You're not allowed to approach the table. That's just really poor etiquette. You're meant to stay back. You're allowed to look. You're allowed to be in the courtyard. But you're not allowed to approach the table. But secondly, this woman was a notorious sinner. So not only was she approaching the table, she was morally corrupt. A notorious sinner. Verse 37, she was a woman who'd lived a sinful life in that town. That's what she was known for. And this word sinner was a code for prostitute perhaps, or adulterous at least. She was a notorious woman for the sins that she'd committed. She was brazenly and outrageously sinful, a loose woman, an immoral woman. She was the kind of woman that stood on the street corners at night, that seduced your husband and broke up families. She was the kind of woman that decent people avoided, that people talked about. She was the subject of town gossip. She was ostracized by the community. The community would be invited to watch, but not her. She was outside of the community. She was ostracized from that community. She was hated. She was abused and ridiculed, except for, of course, for the men who would have used and abused her. And she was the kind of woman who certainly would not have been welcomed in the house of a religious man like Simon the Pharisee. And I want you to understand this, that her approach to the table took incredible courage. She was being very courageous. She was taking considerable risk in approaching Jesus. The crowd could have turned on her at any moment. They could have turned, they could have shouted, they could have abused, they could have stoned her. Remember the story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery. Well, it was the same situation for this woman. They could have turned on her at any moment. And you could just hear Simon saying, how did she get in here? Who let her in? What's she doing in my house? And what's she doing approaching my table? Because it says he knew what kind of woman she was. And it would have been bad enough that she'd entered the house. It would have been horrifying that she had approached the table what would have been unforgivable was that she, this woman, approached Simon's honoured guest. But this woman, despite the outrage, she wouldn't be kept from Jesus. She wouldn't be hindered from pouring out her love and the extravagance of her devotion. No, she pushed her way through the religious and the pious, the superior and the pride, and she threw herself down at Jesus' feet. She just couldn't help us off. Do you know, I find it so interesting that this woman of such ill repute was so magnetically drawn to Jesus. Now you think that such a holy man, such a, such a godly man, would somehow intimidate her in some way, but there was something about Jesus that she just couldn't be kept from him. She, she was drawn to him like a moth to a flame. Uh, I don't know what got hold of this woman. I I don't know how she knew about Jesus, whether she'd encountered him before. The passage doesn't say. Maybe she'd heard Jesus speak before. Or perhaps he'd healed her. Some even think maybe she was the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. There's all sorts of speculation around, but we don't know. Maybe it was just that he acknowledged her. and, And there was a smile of acceptance when others turned away and shunned her. All we know is that she'd heard that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so her instinctive response was to reach for the most valuable thing that she had, an alabaster box of perfume. And she runs to find him. And then she starts to worship him with all that she had with all that she was. I mean, let's, let's look at this worship, her outrageous worship, because it involved every part of her. Every part of her. First it says that she broke the alabaster jar. Now Luke verse 37 shows us that this was probably a very valuable jar. It, it probably contained a perfume called nard because only the very best perfumes were kept in alabaster jars and if it if it was that then it would have been worth an awful lot of money at least a year's wages and you know it would have probably been a family heirloom or perhaps a precious gift that somebody had given her certainly it would have been something that she would have kept for her older days when she couldn't keep work on the game and she needed some other kind of income But it was this jar that she reached for. And she would have broken the neck of the bottle. It wasn't one of those screw-top bottles or even a cork that we would have. She would have broken the neck of the bottle to release that fragrance. And this was irreversible. There was no going back from this point. It was totally irreversible. Once broken, that was it. The perfume was out. There was no going back. And outrageous worship, I want to suggest to you, requires this kind of sacrifice, this sense of no going back. The Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise, doesn't it? And it's got to cost something. It's got to mean something. It's almost like something has to break. Perhaps it's the neck of our dignity. David found this, didn't he, when he danced before the Lord, we were singing that song and all looking around nervously, wondering who was going to be more undignified. (laughs) But David found this, he danced before the Lord and it says that he literally exposed itself. Now I'm not trying to encourage that, persuade that, or even underline that as a good model, (laughs) but I'm just saying that was the extravagance of his worship. Well, perhaps for you, it's it's your pride. I mean, last weekend on Sunday, those that were here would have seen me slightly embarrassed. I was trying to introduce the visiting speaker, and I was so overcome with the presence of God, I could barely speak. And then, worst thing of all, I sat on the front row, couldn't sit up properly. I couldn't stop giggling all the way through when somebody's trying to preach. This is such bad manners. On the front row, making a fool of myself, I tried to sit up several times and every time I fell over again. And then just as I started to relax and think, it's okay, it's gone off now, my son leans over and throws a fireball at me and I'm off again. And I just felt God say to me, yeah, you've got some religious stuff in you too. Perhaps it's your pride that needs breaking. Or perhaps it's your English reserve. (laughs) Or perhaps it's your cool image. Now, a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago, some of us were down in Bedford. I was just trying to look for somebody cool. I couldn't see anybody particularly. (laughs) I'll talk about another church then. Uh, A few weeks ago, we were down at Bedford, and uh, we were hearing about the story of the church there. Steve and I were at a conference there. And uh, Simon was sharing something that, that was basically the turnaround for them in the supernatural was the time when somebody in the worship led them in the conga. The conga. I mean, that's as bad as tambourines and flags as far as I'm concerned. And... People were saying, We don't do that. We're too cool. We're the King's Arms. We don't do that kind of dancing here. And he says that something had to break. And something did break. And suddenly people were not so worried about cool image. It was more about passionate worship. And then we come back here on the Sunday, and lo and behold, what happens? I'm dancing, which hardly ever happens. And then somebody goes and starts the conga. And I just thought, Wow. God's doing something here as well. So maybe we were a bit too cool, I don't know. But I don't know, something had to break. I just feel like God has been doing that amongst us. There's something that's been needing to break, to break out of that reserve, to break out of just being nice sitting behind a pew. Outrageous worship's already started. And I don't know what it is for you, but something that's got to break if our worship is going to be Outrageous. But this lady, well, she was already pretty broken. And what broke for her was an outpouring of her heart to a man who loved her like nobody else. And all she could do was pour it all over Jesus. And then you see that she starts to weep. Her tears become involved in her worship. I mean, the the normal way of anointing somebody is over the head. Okay, so you break the alabaster box, you anoint them over the head, you pour it over. But it seems like she couldn't quite get to Jesus' head. It says that she could only get to his feet. It says in verse 38, she stood behind him at his feet weeping. She couldn't even get to his head, feet away from the table. That's all she could manage. Before she's even got the chance to pour out the perfume, her emotions overwhelm us overwhelm her, and she starts weeping. And boy, does she weep. I mean, the literal word here is she wailed. The message version says, raining. She was raining tears. I love this picture of this woman pouring, her tears pouring down over Jesus' feet, not just gentle sobs, not just sort of appropriate tears of pious worship falling down her face, but tears that literally rained down, tears that poured down, imagine her head bowed over, it was leaning over with such a deluge of gratefulness and thanks that the cake dirt on Jesus' feet from work, walking through a dry Middle Eastern street starts to get washed away. Now, that's some tears, and that's some wailing, isn't it? Some outpouring. <laughs> I, I can't help I'm, but feel sorry for Simon. I mean, his dinner party is by now completely ruined. Not only has this woman shamed him with her presence, approached her, she's wailing all over him. And she just can't be stopped for some reason. You know that that moment when you're crying and you just can't stop? (laughs) She was at that point, she was just wailing. And you know, I wonder when you last... (laughs) I wonder when you last cried... In Jesus' presence, like that. I wonder when you last allowed your emotions to get the better of you when you were expressing your love and devotion to Jesus. I wonder when you last felt free enough to laugh or to shout or to speak out words with loud praise. You know, there's been occasions several times recently where I found it hard to contain myself in worship. And I've wanted to shout. And we have, haven't we? We've done a bit of shouting out in praise. But she didn't care what anybody thought. It just welled up within her and it burst out like a dam being broken. Because she just loved Jesus. She just loved him. She just loved him. Jesus said, it's because she knows how much she's been forgiven. (laughs) She loved him. Nobody had treated her like that. Nobody had loved her like that. Nobody had spoken to her the way that Jesus had spoken to her. She loved him. Let me ask you if you love Jesus. Do you love Jesus like that? Is there, is there something that actually connects even with your emotions when you express your love to Him? Her whole being, it seemed, was involved in her worship of Jesus. And then she even got her hair involved in worship. There's her tears and then there's hair. And it's like, oh, is there, there's a problem here. You see, Jesus' feet were getting all wet, and it's starting to get muddy. How embarrassing. Well, of course, the obvious thing that happens when your emotion gets the better of you, embarrassing things start to happen. We need to get a grip. We need to stop. We need to, come on. So she starts frantically wiping away the evidence with her hair. Is that how it was? I don't think so it was all too deliberate you see a Jewish woman didn't wear her hair down they wore it in braids or it was plaited and so it would have been a bit difficult to use her hair as a towel when it's up in braids now I think she made a conscious decision to humble herself I love that You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians, he calls a woman's hair her glory. And it's like she threw her glory down at Jesus' feet. And so she would have had to have gone through this deliberate and time-consuming process of undoing her hair. Can you imagine the excruciating delay The silence that would have come across that room as this woman fumbled to undo her hair. The whispers. You know, these days, somebody would have probably started a song, you know. When it gets to that awkward moment of silence sometimes in worship, our instinct is let's make a noise somehow, (laughs) let's just cover this over. This was outrageous. This was outrageous. A Jewish woman would have only done this in the presence of her husband. It was a shameful thing for her to take down her hair outside of the bedroom. And so, was she saying, as somebody suggested recently, Jesus, I take down my hair, I'm yours you're my lover, you're my husband, you're the one that I want to be intimate with. Such intimacy. Such vulnerability. After taking down her hair, it says that she began to kiss Jesus' feet. She kissed them and she poured perfume on them. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 45 that she didn't stop kissing my feet for a moment. That's the literal translation. She started kissing his feet and she just didn't stop. And of course, this is the truest form of worship. If you look at the the, the Greek word in the New Testament for worship, the most commonly translated word for worship is the word proskunio, which means to lean towards and to kiss. She literally worshipped Jesus with her kisses. It just so reminds me of that passage in Isaiah 52, where it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. Because, you know, there was something incredibly beautiful about Jesus' feet to this woman. Because the one with these feet had proclaimed peace to her. You know, previously she'd just been racked with guilt and fear. He'd brought good news to her, whereas before there had only been hopelessness and despair. He'd proclaimed salvation, whereas before she'd been lost and dead in her sins. So she didn't stop from kissing Jesus' feet. Are you getting this? And then there was the perfume that was poured out through this broken jar. You know, nard, the perfume, has a warm, fragrant, musky smell. And it would have filled the place. It would have been a very intense odour. It would have covered over the smell of the sweat of a dozen bodies from Middle Eastern sun. They didn't have deodorant in those days, okay? So it would have covered over that smell. It would have covered over the smell of the open sewers that undoubtedly would have been running just outside the window or somewhere nearby. It would have covered over the smell of Simon's food. Oh, do you know, it must have been a wonderful smell in that context. I love what Julian said last week that following this outpouring of worship, two people left the room smelling the same a prostitute and Jesus. And you know, I wonder what your worship smells like to God. Not just here on a Sunday. I mean, we can all scrub up well for a Sunday. But what about your life? What about the way that you live? Does your life smell good to God? Is it rich? Is it extravagant? Is it a smell that you want others to catch as it fills the place? The smell of your life. What do you like to be around? This woman, she poured out the best smelling fragrance with a sense of extravagance and wastefulness. It was an outrageous waste. It was so costly. (laughs) But it smelled wonderful to Jesus. And that's not just because nard smells nice and covers over the smell of Middle Eastern bodies and sewers and all the rest. It's because he understood the heart that was involved. He understood the worship. He understood the adoration He understood the exceeding gratefulness of a woman that has sinned so much and been forgiven so much. And this extravagance, this outrageous display of all that she was and all that she had was poured out not in a church service, not even in front of well-meaning friends, it was in the presence of her enemies. It was in the presence of those that judged her and would have stoned her if they'd had the chance. The incredible risk, the danger of that moment. So how much more should we be free to express outrageous love and devotion here amongst those that love us? how much more those that honour us, those that are our friends here in the church. You know, there's so many testimonies amongst us of lives that have been changed by the power of God. How much more should our worship just pour out of our hearts so easily? Stories of forgiveness, outrageous grace and love poured out on so many. And you know, it just makes me wonder, how can we hold back? How can we hold back on our worship? How can we come, sometimes week after week, and sit quietly in the pew, (laughs) literally? How can our hearts not break? How can our reserve hold back the flow of gratefulness and thanks? Why shouldn't we just jump and dance and shout and cry and laugh all at the same time? Look what Jesus has done. Look at who he is. Look at the welcome that there is for us here I and mean, what do you think needs to break for you today you know what is your equivalent of the alabaster box what is it that you value above your worship of Jesus that's a hard one to say isn't it but what is it that comes before that what others might think Despite this woman's example, you see, Simon the Pharisee didn't get it. I don't think any of his friends did either. They didn't get it. They were just too offended by what they saw. They were offended by the outrage of the whole situation. And the reality is, is that some will be offended by a demonstration of outrageous worship. People were around this woman. People were around David when he danced. Remember Saul's daughter, Michael, she was standing there in the shadows looking on. It says that she despised David in her heart when she saw him whirling and dancing before the Lord. You know, we can be like that. We can despise extravagant shows of emotion. But if we're going to live lives that are truly outrageous in worship, I think we're going to need to decide whether we are going to get offended or whether we're going to be outrageous. I think there's a decision that needs to be made. I mean, for me, I've got to say, I've been both. I've been both outrageous and offended. And sometimes I've been offended with myself. You know, I've gone away. I mean, I went... I went to a meeting this week, and I, and I let it out a bit, and I got a bit carried away. And I was thinking, oh, why did you do that? Why, did you, why weren't you just a bit cooler? Why you just hold back a bit, a bit more reserve? Say a bit more, sort of, I mean, how do you say that? Do you know what I mean? Just a bit, you know, slightly removed from the situation. I thought this through. This is a good point. Whereas I just say, you need to love Jesus more. And then you think, oh, I shouldn't have, I should have just. Sometimes it just gets out. And you offend even yourself. Somebody once said, get over yourself. Everybody else has. Look, I believe Julian's word for us and the whole thing is very important because in it I think we have God's strategy for the next season of what God wants to do through Jubilee. I mean, just that thing about outrageous worship uh, will usher in my reign, will mark this church out, will displace spiritual strongholds. That's incredibly powerful Like God wants to do something phenomenal In this community, and you kind of look around and we've got to that holiday time and there's lots of people away and all that kind of thing. Well, how can that be true? We don't seem big enough, strong enough, loud enough, even. But God has spoken, and He says, When you are going to praise in an outrageous way, strongholds are going to be broken. And I believe what God says more than anything else. So I want to encourage us to repent of any offense. You know, even a fence with yourself. Allow God to have his way through us. Let's ask him to show us what needs to break in me, in my life. Because I think sometimes we can say things like, well, do you know, it's not my personality to be so demonstrative. I knew a lady a few years ago who I've told you about before, some of you, because she made such an impression on me. She was the poshest lady I ever knew. She was called Kay Ainsworth, and you had to say it like that, because otherwise she just didn't understand you. But she was very, very posh, and she was very, very proper. And then one day she got baptised in the Holy Spirit, and she says, it happened when I was sitting in my car, in my garage, and I don't know what came over me, I drove out through the back of the garage, and the door was behind me. (laughs) She was completely drunk in the Holy Spirit. And Kay Ainsworth was the most proper English rose I have ever met. It's not just about personality. It's about what God does in our hearts. And I believe that God wants to release for us a new sense of freedom... And bring us into this season of stronghold-busting, kingdom-advancing, Jubilee Church Solihull bursting out in outrageous worship.